think just about everyone has a conversion story that they can tell. How their dad, for example, had been a union steel worker and a stalwart Democrat, but how all their brothers and sisters one day started voting Republican. Or how their cousin gave up on Methodism and started going to the Pentecostal church out on the edge of town. Or how they themselves just got so sick and tired of being scolded for eating meat or for wearing clothes emblazoned with the state use Indian mascot that one day Fox News started to seem fair and balanced to them after all. Now, each of these are expressions of what I call the Great Backlash, a style of conservatism that first came snarling onto the national stage in response to the partying and protests of the late 1960s. And while earlier forms of conservatism emphasized fiscal sobriety, the backlash mobilizes voters with explosive social issues, summoning up our outrage over everything from busing to blaspheming art, which outrage it then marries to pro-business economic policy. So here's the key. Cultural anger is marshaled to achieve economic ends. And it's these economic achievements that are the movement's greatest monuments. The backlash is what has made possible the great international free market consensus of recent years with all the privatization, deregulation, and deunionization that are its components. The backlash is what ensures that Republicans will continue to be returned to office even when their free market miracles fail and their libertarian schemes don't deliver and their new economy collapses in ruins. The backlash is what makes possible the policy pushers' fantasies of globalization and a free trade empire that are then foisted on the rest of the world with such self-assurance. Because some artist decides to shock the hicks by dunking Jesus in urine, every country on the planet has had to remake its economy along the lines preferred by the Republican Party USA. Now, the Great Backlash has made the laissez-faire revival possible, but this doesn't mean that it speaks to us in the manner of the capitalists of old, you know, invoking the divine right of money or demanding that the lowly learn their place in the great chain of being. On the contrary, the Backlash tells us that it is a foe of the elite, that it's the voice of the unfairly persecuted, that it's a righteous protest of the people on history's receiving end. That its champions today, in fact, control all three branches of government matters not a whit. That its greatest beneficiaries are, in fact, the wealthiest people on the planet does not give it pause. In fact, backlash leaders systematically downplay the politics of economics. The movement's basic premise is that culture outweighs economics as a matter of public concern, that values matter most, as one book title has it. And on these grounds, it rallies citizens who would once have been reliable partisans of the New Deal to the standard of conservatism. Now, once conservatives are in office, however, the only old-fashioned situation they ever care to revive is the economic one of low wages and lax regulations. And over the last three decades, they have smashed the welfare state, reduced the tax burden on corporations and the wealthy, and generally returned the country to a 19th century pattern of wealth distribution. So thus we have the primary contradiction of the backlash. It is a working class movement that has done incalculable historic harm to working class people. The leaders of the backlash may talk Christ, but they walk corporate.
Values may matter most to voters, but they always wind up taking a back seat to the needs of money once the elections are won. And this is a basic earmark of the phenomenon, absolutely consistent across its decades-long history. Think about it. Abortion is never halted. School prayer never returns. The culture industry is never forced to clean up its act. Now, this is vexing for people like me that want to write about the backlash, and you might expect it to vex the movement's true believers even more. Their grandstanding leaders never deliver. Their fury mounts and mounts, and nevertheless, they turn out every couple of years to return their right-wing heroes to office for a second, a third, a twentieth try. The trick never ages. The illusion never wears off. You vote to stop abortion, and you receive a rollback in capital gains taxes. You vote to make our country strong again, and you receive deindustrialization. You vote to get those politically correct college professors, and you receive electricity deregulation. You vote to get government off our backs, and you receive conglomeration and monopoly everywhere from media to meatpacking. You vote to stand tall against terrorists. You receive social security privatization. You vote to strike a blow against elitism, and you receive a social order in which wealth is more concentrated than ever before in our lifetimes, in which workers have been stripped of power and CEOs are today rewarded in a manner that is beyond imagining. Like a French revolution in reverse, in which the sans-culottes come pouring down the streets demanding more power to the aristocracy, the backlash pushes the spectrum of the acceptable to the right, to the right, and further to the right. And having rolled back the landmark economic reforms of the 1960s and those of the 1930s, its leaders today turn their guns on the accomplishments of the earliest years of progressivism, things like the estate tax and the antitrust regime of Theodore Roosevelt. With a little more effort, I think, the backlash may well be able to repeal the entire 20th century. Now, as a formula for holding together a dominant political coalition, which is what it is, the backlash seems so improbable and so self-contradictory that liberal observers often have trouble believing it's actually happening. For the Republican Party to present itself as the champion of working-class America strikes them as such an egregious reversal of political tradition that they just dismiss the whole phenomenon. They brush it off. They don't want to take it seriously. The great backlash, they tell us, is nothing but crypto-racism or a disease of the elderly or the random gripings of religious rednecks or the protests of angry white men feeling left behind by history. Now, each of which is true to some degree. But I think that to understand the backlash in this way is to miss its power as an idea and its broad popular vitality. I mean, it keeps on a coming despite everything, a plague of bitterness capable of spreading from the old to the young, from Protestant fundamentalists to Catholics and Jews, and from the angry white man to every demographic shading imaginable. And it matters not at all that the forces which triggered the backlash back in the late 1960s have long since disappeared. The backlash roars on, undiminished, its rage carrying easily across the decades. The confident liberals that led America back in those days in the 1960s are pretty much a dying species today. 
the new left, with its gleeful obscenities and its contempt for the flag, is extinct altogether now. The whole affluent society, with its paternalistic corporations and its powerful labor unions, fades further into the ether with each passing year. And yet the backlash continues to dream its terrifying dreams of national decline, epic lawlessness, and betrayal at the top, regardless of what's actually going on in the world. And along the way, what was once genuine and grassroots and even populist about the backlash phenomenon has been transformed into a stimulus-response melodrama with a plot as formulaic as an episode of the O'Reilly Factor and with results as predictable and as profitable as Coca-Cola advertising. In one end, you feed an item about, say, the menace of gay marriage, and at the other end, you generate almost mechanically an uptick of middle American indignation, angry letters to the editor, an electoral harvest of the most gratifying sort. Now, when you look at the world through the lens of CNN... It sometimes seems like we live in a country where everything works, where everything's in its place, where junior executives stride confidently through offices humming with purpose and determination. This is a new age of reason, they tell us, a new economy even, with the websites singing each to each with a mall down the way that every week has miraculously anticipated our subtly shifting tastes, and with a global economy whose rich rewards just keep flowing. But on closer inspection, I sometimes think, this country we live in seems more like a panorama of madness and delusion 